If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through this, this book of the Old Testament. We're on Job chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter. So Job chapter 5, verses 1 through 27, that's on page 419 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Job chapter 5. Remember this sermon series is the book of Job, God and Suffering. And as we work our way through, this is the first friend that, that speaks, and he begins speaking on God and suffering. So we're going to be taking a look at this entire chapter, but first let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to understand this passage. Please show us the true meaning. Father, we ask for understanding and we also ask for wisdom to properly apply what you teach us and incorporate it into the patterns of our life, how we walk before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, you're, you're joining us for part two of a two-part message, and I think I commented last week that these are not standalone sermons, so you, you really needed to, to get last week's to get the full benefit out of this week's, and you really need this week's to get full benefit out of last week's. So uh, if you are happy to join us uh, this morning, it is online, you can listen to the first one uh, kind of after the fact, but... We're going to be jumping in at chapter 5, and the reason it's a two-part message is because this is one speech from Job's friend Eliphaz. This is the first time he speaks uh, in this, this poetic portion of the, of the book. And so we had to take it together. It, it, it's one speech, but we divided it up because it was just too bulky to handle in one Sunday morning. So we're going to be looking at Job chapter 5. And if you remember from last week, we were talking about distortion, and we said sometimes distortion is a good thing. For example, when guitars, like guitars, are distorted, it gives it that crunchy, punchy sound that we uh, hear in a lot of modern music. That's a good thing. But then sometimes it's a, it's a bad thing. Distortion isn't a good thing when someone is retelling the events, and they're supposed to be telling the truth, and they twist it, or they distort it just a little bit. Or if they're giving a, an eyewitness account of something that happened. We don't want distortion. Several years ago, I was summoned for jury duty, and I was brought in, and there was this long, uh, week-long trial of extended testimony for and against someone who was charged with dealing drugs. It was a criminal uh, trial by jury. And a key part of that evidence that was brought before us as the jurors were eyewitness testimonies. And we were told we convicted this person uh, based on those eyewitness testimonies and all the other evidence. And the judge came to the jurors after the trial and said, thank you for doing your duty. Uh, this person has multiple prior convictions, which they weren't able to tell us during the trial. They, they withheld that information. But afterwards, the judge came and said, thank you for doing your duty. This person has multiple uh, convictions. And finally, we're going to be able to put him in state prison and stop the harm that he's causing on the streets. Now those important witnesses were key in determining the innocence or guilt of this particular 
defendant. And in the end, he was found guilty. And it was a good thing. Justice was served. He really was guilty, and he's now really serving his time. Now, if it's important for people to avoid distortion when they're on the stand, giving eyewitness testimony to, to a human trial, how much more so is it important for those that are giving testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ to give an undistorted message? Infinitely more important. Whatever trials happen in this, in this world are, are played out and have their consequences played out within the finite time of, of human history. Spiritual things are for eternity. We want to be sure we're giving a, an undistorted message. So today we're going to walk through and explain what Eliphaz is saying in chapter 5. And if you remember from last time, we identified, we just introduced, we didn't really expand on that, but we identified two distortions about the things of God that Eliphaz was presenting in chapter 4. So we're going to see what God has to say about those same two distortions. We're going to turn to scripture for some clarity. And then finally we're going to move from then to now and seek to apply a life as a speech, the distortions and the clarifying versions and how to, to live it out rightly. So here's Job chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly a cursed is dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns. And the thirsty pant for after his wealth, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and, the injustice, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, he shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true, here. 
and know it for your good. Well, Eliphaz was looking for an answer to his question back in verse 7 of chapter 4, which was this, who that was innocent ever perished? And remember, Eliphaz said that due to his experiential observation, he started off by saying, as I have seen, and then he went off to explain what he had seen. And his answer was, never, because bad things only happen to people who have done bad things. This was Eliphaz's theology. He also referenced his message from the night spirit. We took a look at that in detail last week. Remember the the spirit that, that hovered over his face and stood still and didn't say anything. He referenced the night spirit as further evidence that no man can stand before God blameless, upright, fearing God and turning from evil as Job had been maintaining. And as we saw in the earlier chapters, as God had testified. No one can stand before God. All people are evil compared to God. Man is low. Man is so low that it's impossible for anyone to be called blameless, upright, turning from evil, fearing God. And all this was brought against Job in an effort to force Job to admit that he deserves the suffering that he is experiencing. He's trying to convince Job to let go of his innocence and embrace his guilt. So if we had to summarize chapter 4, it would be this. Eliphaz is saying, nobody can claim to walk before God like you are claiming to walk before God, Job. It just doesn't happen. Even the supernatural messenger told me it can't be done. Uh, people are, are really low. They're essentially worms before God who cannot live faithfully. Everybody that has something bad happen to them can trace back, and if they go back far enough are going to be able to find something that serves as the basis or the grounds for the suffering they're experiencing. Therefore, Job, don't sit there in the ashes and tell me you haven't done anything wrong. Just come on out with it. Stop playing Mr. Innocent. Tell me, what is it have you done that has brought all this suffering upon you? Because remember, Job, good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. And by the way things look to me, you must have done something really, really bad. Because the suffering you're experiencing, the calamity and destruction that has come upon you and your household is unprecedented. What did you do, Job? That's chapter 4. And then chapter 5 now is going to be a life as taking this theology and taking this this evidence that he's marshaled against Job and trying to verbally coax him into going along with his thinking, into going along with his understanding of how things work in the universe and how God operates. And essentially what he's pressuring Job to do is take back your innocent plea and instead submit a plea of guilty. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 5, we're going to see the same Distortion that we saw in chapter 4. He's calling Job to call out for help, and the implied answer is no one's going to be there. You can call out if you want, but you're not going to get any help, not as long as you're maintaining your innocence. That's got to change. And then verses 2 through 7, Eliphaz talks about the fool, and the implication is I, I hope you can see this the implication is here 
that Job is acting like the fool. Job, with all his emotional outbursts and his, his cries to God, is acting like the fool, and it's not going to help. Job has taken root. In other words, Job started off life in a pretty good position. In fact, he was the greatest in all the land. He had taken root, but not anymore. His household had been destroyed. His children have been crushed. Others are eating his harvest and enjoying his wealth. Do you see the parallels there? He's talking about the fool, but he really means Job. He's trying to, to give Job one of these slaps across the face saying, wake up. Verse 6, we see this mistaken theology. It's stated again. Um, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. All this affliction and trouble that you're experiencing, Job, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's a reason for it. Go back in time. Think back. What did you do? You must have been doing something really bad. And then in verses 8 through 16, we're going to title this section, Here's What I Would Do, Job. And you can see that right at, at the beginning. It says, as for me, it's almost like if you, if you want my advice, here's, here's what I would do, Job. If I were you, I would admit I was wrong. I would turn to God. God, remember, who's the one who causes good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people. You need to confess your sin and seek God. God is the only one who can help you because he's the only one who can do anything about it. But you have to come clean first. He's the one that can do all these things. If you look, if you run your eye down verses 8 through 16, you know, he, he gives a list of these things. He gives rain on the earth. He sets high those who are lowly. He frustrates the devices of the crafty. He's just going through um, a list of things that God is capable of doing if you change your plea to guilty. Verse 17. This is discipline. You did something wrong. This is discipline, Job. Don't fight it. Don't sit there and maintain your innocence. You need to lean into this and see it for what it really is. God's disciplining you. He's bringing the hammer down because you did something wrong. Admit it. And then finally in verses 18 through 26, this whole section, we're going to title this, All This Can Be Yours. Job lays it out. He said, all right, I've, I've put the pressure on you. I've, I've put the screws uh, to, to you. And now, look, Job, this is what awaits you if you will only turn from your insistence that you've not done something wrong, admit your sin. Look, you shall not fear destruction, the sword, or famine. These were all very present dangers in the ancient Near East. You're not going to have to fear any of that. Everything will be in its place. Um, it talks about, there's one kind of, a cryptic verse that says the stones will be in league or you, you shall be in league with the stones of the field. This means, you know, as you're planting your field, you're not going to have to spend all this time moving the stones. They're going to be out of the way for you. Everything's going to go really well. You'll live to a ripe old age. You will have many offspring again. Again, things that were very highly prized in the ancient Near East and oftentimes interpreted as a blessing for God for doing the right things. In short, he says, Job, you're going to receive health, wealth, family, prosperity, and peace. But you've got to turn from your innocent plea. All this can be yours if you just come to your senses. And then verse 27, this is the final line from the life as, Behold, this we have searched out, it's true. Here, know it for your good. We, meaning all three friends, are in agreement. We've looked into this, Joe. Trust us. 
Okay? Don't, don't question us, just take my advice, and from the looks of, thing, uh, the looks of things, you're, you're in no position to give advice. On the other hand, we are doing okay, which means we must be doing something right, and so you need to listen to us. A very confident attitude from a life as, a very confident, we can't possibly be wrong attitude coming from friend number one. Well, this is distortion, as we talked about last week. It's still distortion this week. Let's take a look at the two distortions in detail, and then also let's answer those. Let's clear away the fog and get to some clarity on these things of God. Number one, a hyper-low view of mankind. This is the first distortion. Man's way, way down here. Compared to God, we're nothing. We're way, way down here. We're despicable creatures. But the truth is, we're not despicable creatures as God views us. We're not like moths that he snuffs out and crushes when he grows tired of us. Later on in Job, Bildad will be speaking in verse, uh, chapter 25. He's going to equate, using the same low, low hyperview, low of man, he's going to equate man with worms and maggots. Does that sound right? It's not. It's not right. All people are made in the image of God. All are image bearers. We are to glorify God and represent him in creation. Every person ever born has the image of God. We are image of God bearers. Now this is not true of the Holy Spirit. We need to make a distinction here. The Holy Spirit does not belong to all people. The Holy Spirit does not reside in believers and unbelievers alike. The Holy Spirit does not lie dormant inside unbelievers like a seed waiting to be watered. That's just not true. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is given to those who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are called effectually by God into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness, the ones who are in Christ by faith. Those are the ones that have the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers do not have the Holy Spirit. However, in contrast, when we come to the image of God, all people bear the image of God, believers, unbelievers alike. And this is the first reason why all people are to be treated with dignity. Now, it's been tarnished since the fall. It doesn't shine as brightly as it did in the garden before the fall, but it is still there, and it is present in every man, woman, and child. And then on top of this, not only are we image bearers, brothers and sisters, but as believers... We have been sanctified or made holy by God. Listen to what scripture has to say about us, about you and I. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession. You are God's people. Again, in Ephesians to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Remember, we reject this teaching that says saints, that title can only be given to super Christians that have merited all kinds of you know, extra grace. No, we reject that. The Bible teaches everyone in Christ is to be called a saint. You are a saint if you are in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like God views us as worms and maggots? No. Does that sound like it's impossible to be considered faithful and holy by God? 
No. In fact, he calls us that. Faithful, holy. Those are words that God uses to describe his people in Christ. Psalm 103.13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fatherly compassion. No, in fact, this, this distortion that's prevented by a life as is not true. It's Satan who is the one who would like to take something as good and as, as pure as the doctrine of total depravity, which we believe in. Yes, we are all sinners. Yes, sin is detestable to God. But that doesn't mean that we are to refer ourselves as worms and maggots. Satan's the one who would twist and pervert that doctrine in saying that people are incapable of being loved by God or or regarded by God uh, because they are more insignificant than insects or uh, like a moth or something like that. Now, those who hold to five-point Calvinism and good old Reformed doctrine like we do will sometimes fall into the error of overemphasizing their total depravity. Okay? You've probably heard this. Maybe you've even done this before. I know I've heard it. Uh, sometimes people who hold to, to a very tight, uh, right doctrine of Scripture take this doctrine of total depravity so far that it eclipses who we are in Christ and how God describes us in Christ and the image bearers that we are. So if you might have seen something along the lines of this, or heard it along the lines of this. Uh, sometimes somebody might start off by saying, uh, you know, God's way up here, and, and I'm just this no good, dirty, rotten, filthy, snake in the grass, sin committing, filthy, and they just stack on one after another of these, of these depreciating terms so that it goes too far. And I understand what they're doing. I understand what they're doing. They, they don't want to make the error of placing themselves on, on the same level as God. That's a good thing. Praise God. I don't think it's um, malicious in any way. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's in good faith. However, we are deeply loved by God. You, brothers and sisters, are considered faithful and holy. So should we use those types of terms? Should we go to that length to, to lower ourselves? Let's put it another way. God doesn't use those types of terms to describe us, so there's really no reason for us to use those types of terms either. Again, we're not placing ourselves on the same level of God. God's still up here, we're still down here. We're saying we're not down here. We're not below insects and worms that don't have souls. We don't need to refer to ourselves in language that God doesn't refer to ourselves. We can still do that and maintain a healthy doctrine of total depravity. So that's number one. That's that hyperlow view of man. Let's use the words God uses to describe ourselves. So number two, the second distortion was cause and effect theology. Good people have good things happen to them. Bad people have bad things happen to them. This is that cause effect theology that, that a life has presented. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That's how he started it off. Now remember, he bolstered it by bringing in the night spirit testimony. But he started off with his, his own experiential observation. As I have seen, and then he went on to state this, as I have seen, I'm not exactly sure who Eliphaz was watching over his lifetime because 
I think as most of us have seen, this isn't always true. It's just not true all the time. As we look around us, there are Christ-haters who do very well in this life. There are those who, who follow after false gods and false religions or embrace unbelief or a cult, and they live long, healthy, prosperous lives. And there are those that have a strong faith in Christ who experience extreme hardship and have tragic events intrude on their lives or have their lives cut short, relatively speaking. Do you see what I'm saying? This, this just doesn't work when you match it up to reality, not all the time. So the life as cause and effect theology about blessings and suffering doesn't always work. It's a distortion. Now we're going to look at three parts. We're going to briefly touch on each one of these. Three parts to this cause and effect distortion. Number one, he's lumping everyone together, believers and unbelievers alike. He's just saying, this is how it works in the world, this is how it works in the universe, and he lumps everybody together. That's number one. Number two, he's saying that repayment, both good and bad, is based on behavior or deeds. And number three, he's assuming that the repayment or the reward for someone's deeds happens in this lifetime. It's something you can see. It's something that's going to get played out now. Well, let's take a look at number one. He's lumping everyone together. It's not true. God does not treat everyone the same. God does not treat believers and unbelievers the same. He just doesn't. Psalm 1-6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does that tell us? That there are two ways, that there are two groups of people, that when God views humanity, he doesn't see one big mass that is indistinguishable from one another in terms of spiritual um, categories. Instead, when God looks at humanity, he sees very clearly those who are his and those who aren't at any given time. Uh, Matthew 13, 47 through 50, it's worth reading just these few verses. These are the words of Christ. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. So scripture teaches both in this life and in eternity, God makes a distinction. Not everybody's lumped together in, in one big group. He, his people, believers, the elect, are shown steadfast covenantal love in a way that unbelievers are not shown. So that second, or that, that first one, lumping everyone together, that, that's a distortion. That's not what scripture teaches. Number two, he's saying that repayment, both good and bad, is based on someone's behavior, whether good or bad. Again, not true. Here's the good news. God does not repay us for our, for our evil deeds. That, that is the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. God does not repay believers according to their sins. Psalm 103, 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. This is the good news. God does not repay us according to our evil deeds. In Christ, if we are in Christ. 
God does repay unbelievers according to their sins. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. So here we, again, we see this differentiation between believers and unbelievers, those that are God's and those that aren't. God does not pay us according, repay us according to our sins, but God does repay unbelievers according to their sins. Big difference. It's only possible in Christ. Only those in Christ are not repaid according to their sins. Everyone else, the wages of sin is death. You work at a job, you get a paycheck at the end of two weeks. You live your life, you get, you get what's coming for your, for your sin and the wrath to come. Unless you te- seek shelter in Christ. That's just the way it works. Big difference. And number three, finally, he is assuming that repayment for someone's deeds happen in this lifetime. Uh, Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Colossians 3.4 When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the vast majority of reward or punishment is not found in this lifetime. The vast majority is found in eternity. Both punishment and and reward. Yes, all people experience consequences for their behavior. We understand that. Yes, God sometimes does bring judgment on unbelievers well in this world, and God often brings blessings on believers in this life. But there is no principle, there is no axiom, there is no uh, rule that says God will always or God has to bring uh, evil on on those who commit evil in this life, and God has to bring blessing on those who who seek God or in Christ in this life. There just isn't something like that that exists. That's not true. Not reality. Now, in fact, we should expect some level of suffering in this life as believers. Jesus modeled for that suffering first, exaltation second. That's the pattern that Christ modeled. And we should expect to walk that same road to some degree. So all three of those distortions about that cause and effect theology just, just don't work. Scripture has the truth. But we also see one more thing in, in Job chapter 5, and that's pointing to Jesus, distortion-free, and that's something we want as well. Life has brought a twisted message, a distorted message, but in 5.1, we also see verses that point to Jesus. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Well, Scripture has told us there is someone that we can call to. There is a holy one of God that we can turn to and who will answer us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Eliphaz posits those two questions with the expectation that the answer is no, there isn't, but the answer is yes, there is. Jesus Christ is the one that we can turn to. Jesus Christ is the one we can call upon to save us from the wrath to come. We want a distortion-free gospel. Scripture teaches this. When someone turns to Jesus Christ, no matter how great their sin, and no matter how long they've been a sinner, when someone turns to Jesus Christ, repents of their sin, 
and turns to him in faith, God promises to forgive their sin, all of it, past, present, and future, to raise them up, to seat them with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, to confer upon them a justified status, meaning your debt has been canceled, the righteousness that is not our own, that comes from Jesus Christ, is credited to you, imputed to the believer. And from that point forward, they are in Christ. Nothing can change it. It's a done deal. They are in covenant with Christ. They get the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Sins are forgiven. God promises that. And the only way God can rightly and justly promise that to anyone is because he's dealt with the sin problem and he's dealt with it through his son on the cross. Jesus shed his blood as a sufficient payment covering the penalty that you and I and every other uh, sinner deserves. Instead, it's placed on Jesus Christ on the cross so that when we place our faith in him, God accepts Jesus' payment on behalf of our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. That's how it's possible. That's the undistorted uh, gospel message. Faith in Christ. And remember, it's not a one and done. That's great that you said a prayer around a campfire when you were in junior high. That's great that you asked Jesus into your heart when you were lying in bed one night. That's great that you went to evangelistic crusade and went down in front and made a declaration for Christ. Praise God. Now, follow that up for the rest of your life, walking the road of faith. Walking the road of faith. Be prepared for a reproach-filled life. Be prepared to reorient your entire worldview around God's word. Be prepared to discard things that you held on to. Deeply held beliefs, throw them away if they conflict with scripture. Be prepared to follow Jesus until you take your last breath. One of the problems today is that there is so much distortion in the world that it's hard for the average Joe to get a clean signal. There's so much interference. There's so much distortion. There's so many sound waves going out that it's hard to get rid of all the static. There were distortions of the truth in Job's day. Interestingly. Look at that. Eliphaz, the faithful friend, bringing distortions about God. There are distortions about the truth in our day. Because there are so many false religions, cults, the church must send a clear, distortion-free message. But sometimes she doesn't. Sometimes she's seduced into joining the world and proclaiming a distorted message of the cross until it's no longer the message of the cross. I mean, right and left, we're watching, we're watching leaders. I'm seeing Christian leaders who have been faithful, reliable, straight down the middle their entire life. And now also they're just kind of walking away. Time for something different. And the message is getting distorted into a false message. That would be great if the only thing we had to contend with were false religions and cults and, and unbelief. No, it's not just that. It's distorted messages within the professing church as well. 
Romans 10.14 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? God reaches people through the ordinary means of saints, people like you and me, proclaiming a distortion-free gospel. That's how God calls people. One person communicating the gospel to another. One person reading the, the words of God in scripture. That's the means that God has chosen to use to call people. Romans 10. He just kind of walks down that chain. How is this going to happen unless somebody hears this distortion-free message? And the answer is, it's not. If the church is not proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, clearly the people will not hear it. There's just too much distortion out there. There's too many competing messages. So the charge to all believers in light of this truth is to send a clear and distorted message. So the challenge to us this morning is, will you do that? Will you send an undistorted message of the gospel? Because there may be a time in your life where you're called upon to provide counsel to a friend or to someone you know. You may be asked about the things of God. What will you tell them? Will you be able to give them a distortion-free message? Will you be able to tell them what they need to know patiently, clearly, plainly, with no distortion? Tell them about how Jesus saves from the wrath to come? Yes, there is Jesus. Yes, there is wrath to come. We'll be able to tell them about how all people are made in the image of God, are image bearers, and are worth dignity. But we also tell them that not all people have the Holy Spirit. It's not automatic. We tell them that cause and effect theology doesn't work. It's not true that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. We'll be able to explain why. We'll be able to provide some examples of how that just doesn't work. Talk about the final judgment. Tell them that God loves them, but also tell them that God will repay everyone outside of Christ for their sins. Tell them that without faith in Jesus, they're hell-bound for eternity. Tell them that turning to, faith, turning to Jesus in faith is the only way to have their sins forgiven because of what he, did, what he did on the cross. God is calling his church to proclaim a distortion-free gospel. And we are called to be the ones to do that. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal your truth to us plainly, clearly, in, in your word. Lord, forgive us when we stray from that message. Forgive us when we, we take a casual attitude. Forgive us when we, we realize there's something we really should know and then we just... Don't bother following up and finding out the answer. Father, we want to be fully equipped to present a distortion-free gospel in our own words, but faithfully to your words. Father, help us to, to know your word well enough to be able to provide and, and relate that word to others, so that you will call them into your kingdom and save them. In Jesus' name, amen.